If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's found on page 960. 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. And two weeks ago, we began looking at this chapter 14, and we focused on the gift of tongues. And we asked the question, what is the real gift of tongues, and what is the counterfeit gift? a counterfeit that's often practiced today in traditions that claim the continuation of the gift of tongues. And in addition to tongues, we saw Paul apply certain principles to the practice of corporate worship. And these principles stem from from really the underlying purpose of spiritual gifts that we discussed in chapters 12 and 13, that his spiritual gifts are to be used for the common good, for the edification of the church. They're to be used for the mutual upbringing of each person in the church, bringing people to Christ, building them up in Christ. And they can only accomplish this purpose if they are exercised in love. So this is what we saw about the spiritual gifts. And we saw that Paul valued prophecy over tongues, at least tongues the way they were being exercised in the Corinthian church, the the counterfeit way. And the reason for this is because prophecy was understandable to the corporate body, whereas tongues, tongues without an interpreter was unintelligible to the church. And prophecy was useful to instruct the church about God, about his nature, about his work. Tongues was, without an interpreter, though, was useless. Uh, It's useless to the church. And really what it did is it puffed up the person exercising the tongue. It made him feel spiritual. It made him feel superior. And Paul also shows us in this chapter, and we'll see a little more of this today in today's reading, that things are to be done in an orderly manner. Paul opposes the frenzy and and the free-for-all that was seen both in Corinthian worship services and in many worship services in our modern day. In verse 33, Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then verse 40 is, is a favorite of us Presbyterians. It gives Paul's conclusion of the matter about how we should practice corporate worship. And he says, but all things should be done decently and in order. And this is the summary of the chapter. Now, some of you may have noticed when I preached this chapter two weeks ago that I actually didn't read the entire chapter. I actually skipped over uh, two and a half verses, a little paragraph. Now, it's not much, a little paragraph in the ESV. I went from verse 33a to verse 36. And I tell you, it would be so easy for me just to move into to chapter 15 and completely ignore these two verses. But it's very important that we understand what these verses teach and what they do not teach. Because these verses affect the most important thing that as Christians we do, and that's worship. That's what we're doing, worshiping the living God. And these verses affect half of the people in the church, women. So we're going to focus on these two and a half verses. I'm going to read the entire section to give us context, but we're really going to ask the question, what do these two and a half verses teach? So 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40. Hear now the word of the Lord. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. 
If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches and saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for your spirit to be with me. I pray for your spirit to be with us. We are looking at a difficult passage, one that is very challenging to us, one that is, if we're honest, very, very offensive to us. So, Father, we pray that we will understand it. We pray that once we understand it, we will accept it and we will submit to it. Father, I pray for your spirit to be with me as I preach. I pray for your spirit to be with each one of us. We pray that you will be pleased, you will be glorified during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we make of these verses? It says that a woman should keep silent in church. They're not permitted to speak. They should be in submission. If they want, if, if they desire anything, to learn anything, they should ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Yikes. What do we make of this? And we believe the Bible. We know it's the very word of God. And we know that God's word often does challenge us. That it's often countercultural. And, and we expect to be stretched. But do these verses mean what they appear to be saying? And when I came in this morning, there were, there were women talking, women sharing prayer requests. We, we had women leading in the singing this morning, leading the worship, pray, playing the piano. Now, we know we could be wrong. And if so, we look to Scripture to correct us. We don't look to the culture. We don't look to what we want to do, not to what feels right, because we know we could feel wrong. No, we know that it's God's Word. God's Word is the only infallible guide to faith and practice that we have. But the confusing thing in this passage is it seems to contradict other passages in Scripture. In our Old Testament reading that Hal read for us, Hannah is pleading with the Lord in the temple, in the presence of Eli, the high priest. And God doesn't rebuke the prayer, but rather he answers the prayer. She is commended. In our Gospel reading, we see Anna. Anna is called a prophetess. She had spent decades in the temple worshiping and praying. It says day and night. And presumably she was also prophesying. So is Anna violating this command? There's no indication that Anna's action is anything but pleasing to God. She's rewarded for being able, she's actually able to see the baby Christ. She's able to see the redemption of Jerusalem. Wow. We have another prophetess, Deborah. An entire chapter of scripture, Judges chapter 5, records her prayer, Deborah's song. Again, there's no indication in Judges that Deborah is displeasing God in pray, with this prayer. In fact, if you remember when we studied Judges, Deborah was one of the very few characters in the entire book of Judges that is presented in a positive light. 
Well, as Reformed Christians, we know, we have a principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. So the way, when we, when we do this, we look to the, the clearer passages of Scripture to help us to interpret the, the ones that are less clear. We look usually to the teaching passages, to the epistles, to interpret the less clear passages, maybe the narrative sections. But if we employ this principle, it would be actually the first Corinthian passage, the one we're looking at now, that's the clear passage in the epistle, that will be used to interpret the other passages. It would be faulty exegesis for us to, to use these less precise narratives of Deborah or Hannah or Anna and use those to negate the clear command. Clear command. The women should keep silent in churches. They are not permitted to speak. It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And if this was all we had, I think it would be very clear that this is the Lord's will, that women should remain silent in the church. But there's one more verse that really throws a, a monkey wrench into this entire discussion. And it's not a narrative section that would be in, interpreted in the light of this verse, but rather it's another teaching section. And it's another teaching of Paul himself. So we can't say that we're pitting Paul against uh, uh, Peter or John. It's Paul's own teaching that contradicts the statement. And to further complicate the, the, the situation, it's Paul's teaching in this very letter in 1 Corinthians. And it's Paul's teaching in this very section dealing with worship. So if you please, just turn back in your Bibles. There's maybe a page or so to 1 Corinthians 11. And let's look at verses 4 and 5. This is the, <clears throat> the section dealing with the head coverings that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It says in verse, chapter 11, verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovers dishonors her head. So here we have in, in chapter 11, women clearly praying, women clearly prophesying, and the context is in worship. So if, if women were to remain silent, this whole section on head coverings would be moot. Now some may, say, may respond and say, well, well, maybe it was silent prayer that the women were not uh, to do. Uh, they must have their head covered. They could, they could pray silently, but they had to have their head covers. And if those of you have questions on head coverings, we preached on this a couple of weeks ago, and you can go find that sermon on Sermon Audio. Now, this is a possibility with, with prayer. And, and, and in our Old Testament reading, it, it said that Hannah was praying so low that Eli couldn't even hear her. He actually thought she was drunk. So we can silently pray to God. But it doesn't just mention prayer here. It mentions prayer and prophecy. This doesn't work with prophecy. We cannot prophesy silently. This would completely violate Paul's rationale for the superiority of prophesy over tongues that we saw in this chapter, chapter 14. See, prophecy is superior because it's actually understandable. It can build up the church. It can build others up. Silent prophecy is not shared with the church. It's of no use to the church. And remember, prophecy is a new revelation from God, and it's given through a prophet. And we have examples both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that prophets could be either men or women. And these are the ones that they are given the benefit. This, this prophecy is given to the benefit for God's people. So I don't think this is what it means. I don't think you could be silent in prophecy. Now, another response to chapter 11 is to say that Paul is speaking about worshiping at home and, and not at the church. <clears throat> but this doesn't work either. Remember that the apostolic church actually worshipped in homes. They didn't have church buildings. 
home worship and church worship were actually the same for the Corinthians. So this doesn't work. Now, another response is that in chapter 11, Paul is actually just describing a practice that took place in Corinth of women praying and prophesying, but Paul is not endorsing this practice. And this is similar to the argument given in chapter 15, which we'll get to in a few weeks, where Paul mentions baptism for the dead. Paul is not endorsing this practice. He's just mentioning a practice that takes place. Well, the problem with this response is that this entire section on head coverings is based on this functional difference between uh, men and women, this functional distinction between men and women while they are praying, while they are prophesying, while they are worshiping. See, if women are simply to remain silent, there'd be no need for this section. Paul, again, would just say, women be silent. Again, it would be moot. So taken on its face, we have a problem here. And it's actually, it's a lot bigger problem than the original question, as important as that is, is whether women must remain silent in church or not. See, the bigger problem is that Scripture seems to be contradicting itself. And if Scripture contradicts itself, it cannot be God's word. It cannot be infallible. And we are wasting our time studying the Bible. See, the integrity of Scripture is at stake if we find a contradiction. So to reconcile this problem, we really can't focus on chapter 11. We need to look at chapter 14. And this is an approach that most scholars have taken when attempting to resolve this apparent conflict within the letter. And one approach is to argue, that many scholars do, is to argue that these verses, 34 and 35, are actually not original writings. Seems like kind of a cop-out to me, saying this is not really supposed to be in the Bible. It's like, I don't like it, I'm going to take it out. And the argument, and and there is is merit to, to it, uh, in many of the manuscripts, this, um, these verses are not in the same place. Most of them, they're in, in where we are in our Bible. But some of them at the end of the chapter, right, located after verse 40. So this, and also they say that the, the argument is that it seems to be uh, breaking the flow of the argument about the use of spiritual gifts. And, the, and there's also an argument that this language is foreign, foreign to Paul. And this has led a few scholars to argue that these verses are not in the original, and they shouldn't really, they should be discarded. But the problem with this view is that there is not a single manuscript that we have that does not contain these verses. And we have manuscripts that, are, that go back a long way, that are early. So this variation, if it was actually added, it would have had to been introduced extremely early if this were the case. And furthermore, if an addition was made by a scribe, usually scribes make additions to seek to clarify the text. Uh, it's very it's very understandable what they're doing. It's something that's difficult. They try to smooth it over. This actually has the opposite effect. It's it's making it more difficult. This doesn't seem like something that a scribe would would uh, would add. But even more important, this solution raises a serious canonical issue by removing a text. A text where there's really it, every every manuscript we has has this in it. This this would really question how we how we interpret. Like the canon. Can we actually take something we don't like and just scrap it out when it's in every manuscript? So I don't think this is a good approach to take. Another approach is to see these verses as representing the Corinthian point of view. And we've seen this in, in, in uh, previous sections uh, with respect to, we call them slogans that the Corinthians had. And the ESV would, would, put, would put quotation marks to indicate that these were not specifically Paul's words, but Paul is responding to the words of the Corinthians. We saw this in areas like chapter 6, verse 12, where you see in quotation marks, it says, all things are lawful for me. 
or in uh, chapter 6, verse 13, where it says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. So this, this is a, this is a uh, slogan that the Corinthians were, were, were given to Paul, and Paul is responding to it. Now, there's many problems with, with this theory. First, the, the other statements attributed to the Corinthians, they're short, they're proverbial statements. It says, food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. This is not the case, what we see. This is a long, uh, a, a long portion. Second is Paul always answers these slogans. He contradicts. He gives a response. And we don't see that here. There is no response. There's no rebuttal to these positions. So this leaves us with the conclusion that Paul wrote these verses. But the question is, what does Paul mean by these verses? Is this a prohibition against all forms of speech by women in, in, in church? Or does Paul prohibit only a certain kind of speech as indicated by the context? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the context of this verse to see exactly what he's talking about. What is the specific aspect of speech that Paul is talking about in these verses? So let's start at verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? And it's not brothers and sisters, it's just brothers. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let things be done for building up. So here Paul is listing the the elements of worship, hymns, lessons, revelations, tongues, interpretation of tongues. And as we have stated in in previous sermons, our Reformed understanding is that there is no new revelation now. The canon of Scripture is now closed, but that doesn't mean that we don't have revelation in our services. We had a lot of revelation in our services. Our revelation is the reading of Scripture. That is the revelatory gifts. The revelatory gifts of prophecy and tongues, tongues with interpretation and revelation, they are now all contained in Scripture, contained in the Bible. And we have much of this. This is a major part of our worship service. Also notice that all things here are being done for building up. The purpose of the spiritual gifts, again, was building up the church for the edification of the church. Verses 27 and 28, they speak specifically about the gifts of tongues, and we've talked about this in our previous sermon two weeks ago, so I'm not going to really look at those. But verses 29 and 32, this gives new instructions that we haven't looked at yet concerning the gift of prophecy. And here I think we can find the answer that we're looking for. So let's take a look at at verses 29 to 32. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, Let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So notice with the gifts of tongues that there is, just as we saw with the gift of tongues, there is an order in the exercise of the gift of prophecy. See, only two or three to speak. Not all speak at the same time. It's not to be a free-for-all. In verse 30 says that if another is revealing a revelation, the others are to remain silent. Again, they're not all to speak to the same time. They're to listen to one another and speak one by one, as we see in verse 31. But notice also that not only is the gift regulated with respect to order, but it's also regulated with respect to the content of the revelation. And we see this in the, in the second part of verse 29. Again, 29 says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. <clears throat> so let the others weigh what is said. And I think this, this statement here is the key to understanding both the passage and also it's giving us the context needed to understand these verses in question, verses 34 and 35. 
What this statement does is it provides a check on the prophecy. See, the prophecy is a new revelation, and this new revelation originates with the Holy Spirit. It's not personal opinions. It's not the, the prophet saying what I think it's going to be. It's a revelation from the Holy Spirit. And if it's coming from the Holy Spirit, it is going to, it is going to be consistent. It is going to agree. The Holy Spirit is only going to speak with one voice. He is not going to contradict himself. And this saying is that the prophets were to self-validate the message of the other prophets. So basically, the prophets are going to listen to each other, and they're all supposed to say basically the same thing. If one says, this is out in left field, they're going to say, no, this is not coming from God. This is coming from your own imagination. And we see this confirmed in verse 32. He says, the spirits of the prophets are subjected to the prophets. See, the prophets were a safeguard. They were to keep the person from proclaiming their own opinions, claiming false prophecy and saying it's the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit speaks with one voice. He's not going to say something way over here and everyone else is saying the same thing. So this is the way that they regulated one another. <clears throat> and this understanding of a unified message is continued in the last paragraph of the chapter in verses 36 to 38. Take a look at these verses. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So in verse 36, Paul is saying that the word of God does not simply come, did not simply come to the Corinthians alone. God is speaking to all his people. God is speaking to his church. And verse 37 is the test to see if one of these people are an authorized prophet or an authentic prophet. And the test is that they will recognize Paul's words, Paul's words coming from God, coming from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul's words. And if they don't recognize this inspiration of Paul's words, then they don't have the Holy Spirit. And hence, as verse 37 says, they will not be recognized. See, the Holy Spirit is consistent in his revelation to his people. And this revelation will always agree. This is why we have this principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. We believe the entire Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he will not contradict himself. He will agree. And while the Spirit may give different sides, different aspects, uh, uh, different views of this revelation, it will always be supplemental. It will never be contradictory. So the prophets themselves are the ones who will confirm the revelation from the other prophets. And I think this is the key. This is the key to understanding uh, these verses, the key context that we need uh, for verses 33b to 35. So let's look at these verses now in light of this, the context of this uniform message of prophecy, confirmed by some, expounded by some other prophets. So let's look at 33b to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So he starts off with these words, as in all the churches of the saints. This is important, because this indicates this is a universal command. Uh, some people will try to say, well, this was only a problem that the Corinthians had. They had women who were, who were, uh, who were disorderly. They, 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 they weren't trained. That's why, uh, that's why he gives this command for them to be signed. No. He says, as in all the churches. Paul's not simply addressing a problem for the Corinthian church. It is a universal command for all churches and all times. So what is this command? We see this in verse 34. 
The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. So let's unpack this verse. The women remaining silent. This is not a universal prohibition for women to remain silent in the worship service in all situations. Because if it was, it would contradict what we saw in Paul's own words in chapter 11 about women prophesying and praying in the worship service. Rather, this command is limited to the immediate context of this passage, which we have seen is in, in the verses both immediately preceding the passage and immediately after the passage. And it's this unified message of the Holy Spirit through the prophets that is weighed by the prophets themselves. A certain subject of, a subset of the prophets are to weigh, authenticate the message, and even in some cases expound on the message. So here's a key point. <clears throat> the command for the women to keep silent is in reference specifically to this role of evaluation of the prophecy spoken by the other prophets. Women are not to participate in the authoritative confirmation of the validity of the prophecy spoken by the other prophets. They are to remain silent for, the, for this validation process, just as those not prophesying are to remain silent when others are prophesying. And as, as verse 34 says, the women are to be in submission to the authoritative evaluation of the prophecy that is given by the church leaders who were men, and this most likely is speaking of the elders of the church. And Paul grounds this command in the law, <clears throat> meaning in the Old Testament scripture. And Paul, Paul here doesn't actually cite the scripture he's referencing, but it's most likely that he's going back to creation, because that's what he referenced in chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, when he said the same, the same um, statement as, uh, as given in the law. He says, For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So he is going back again to creation to ground this command that he's given. And there's another verse that's closely related to this topic is also grounded in creation. And this verse, I think, can provide insight into this particular section. So if you would just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. 1 Timothy 2. 11 through 14. And this says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And here's the, the referring to creation. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now notice the, the wording is very similar to our 1 Corinthians 14 passage. Women are to be quiet and submission. And the grounding of both of these commands come from the law, come from the creation order. So I think the bottom line message of both of these passages is the same. The message is that women are not to exercise the teaching authority in the church. And I think this fits well with the context of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35. Women are not to participate in the authoritative evaluation of the prophecy. In this role, they are to remain silent. But notice, notice that this doesn't prohibit the women from actually praying in the assembly or sharing prophecy. They can actually be the prophets. They just can't give the authoritative evaluation of those prophecies that could come through them themselves. So the Holy Spirit can still use them to give this prophecy. And I think this is in perfect alignment with Paul's 
words in chapter 11 and other scriptures, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, that include women among the prophets, women praying. So the limitation is that women are not to exercise teaching authority with respect to the interpretation and the validation of the prophecy. Now let's look at verse 35 according to this understanding. Verse 35 says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now this is first is not saying that women are to remain silent and they can only be taught at home by their husbands. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that they can't speak, they can't participate in Bible studies, they can't ask clarifying questions. No. The context for which the women are to be silenced is the interpretation of the prophecy. And specifically, I think, <clears throat> I think what is referenced here <clears throat> is prophecy given by their own husband. See, if a woman were included in the group that evaluated the prophecy, it's possible that a woman could actually be in a position to invalidate the prophecy given by her own husband. And this would be shameful because the woman would be publicly undermining her husband's authority as a spiritual head. Paul calls her, referenced in verse 11, the head of the woman is her husband. And this would be shameful because it would undermine the authority structure that God had set up in the family that God has established in creation. Now, this doesn't mean that the the husband is beyond question. No, not at all. It's just that the wife is not to discuss any potential misunderstanding or error. She is to to discuss this in private and not undermine her husband's authority in public. And also, the husband would be still subject to the other prophets to make sure. So again, if he was off in left field, the other prophets should uh, straighten him out and clarify him. So I believe this understanding of verses 34 and 35, I think this fits the context of the passage, and it resolves this apparent contradiction with chapter 11 and with other scripture that describes women as exercising the gift of prophecy and praying in a public worship setting. It it does this without introducing any special background or trying to take parts of scripture and saying it was never Paul's intention, it was never in the original text. So I think this is how we can resolve this contradiction. Now the question is, how do we apply it today? What does this mean for us today? Well, as we said, prophecy has ceased. So there isn't anyone, male or female, who is going to be prophesying. If someone comes here, if I come up here, even as your pastor, and say, I've got a new word for the Lord, get me out of here, because it's not coming from the Lord. We we know prophecy has ceased. God does not give us new revelation by prophets, as he did prior to the completion of the biblical canon. But this does not mean that God does not speak to his church. No, not at all. That God does not provide revelation to his church. Today, that comes not from prophecy, but from scripture. It comes from the Bible. So my understanding of these verses is that all of the congregation, both men and women, can pray aloud in the church. Even when we have our congregational prayer, the women can pray aloud in that congregational prayer. As a congregation, both men and women can do the modern equivalent of prophesying, which is to read scripture aloud in church. And typically we have Nathan or Hal read our our scripture readings, but we could have women. And when we have our lessons and carols, we often do have women reading scripture aloud in church. Women can both sing aloud in church and, and lead worship in church and play the piano and offer up prayer requests. That's all in accordance with what this scripture says. But what women cannot do, what women cannot do, according to this passage and according to First Timothy passage, is give the authoritative interpretation of the scripture reading. In other words, women cannot preach. 
What I am doing now, I am giving the authoritative interpretation of the scripture that we have read. Now, for those of you in the PCA, this is nothing new. We are one of the few denominations that actually limit the role of preaching to a pastor or a pastor and elder to men, the authoritative teaching role to men in our denomination. And many, many in the culture see this as backwards. Maybe even some of you here see this as backwards. I actually heard people refer to the PCA as that church that hates women because we don't allow women to be pastors or elders. But we don't hate women. We simply submit to the teaching of Scripture. And that is why I didn't want to skip over this passage. It would be real easy for to skip over and go right into to talk about the resurrection in chapter 15. But we wanted to look at this. We have to understand what this teaches in depth. We want to understand Scripture because we know it's God's Word. We want to understand it and we want to submit to it. Now, some people have a really hard time with this teaching. And, and I did. I tell you the truth. I did. I mean, Lynn and I were both married by a, by a, a woman preacher in a church, and, and, and we fought against this teaching. And I know many women who are gifted uh, in Bible knowledge and gifted teachers. As a matter of fact, I would put my three daughters up against any man as far as their knowledge of Scripture and theology, even including myself. That's how good they are. I put my wife again, uh, up and my daughters against any man in Scripture and theology. And I remember when I was in seminary, I remember some of the top students were women. They were head and shoulders above the men. I remember one in particular was the top Hebrew student. She was the teaching assistant. And we would go to her. She knew so much more Hebrew than any of us. And people would use this gifting as evidence that women should be given the same opportunities to be pastors as men. But the truth is, it's not about skill. It's not about skill at all. It's not about ability. It's about obedience to God's word. Now, people say, is it really that big of a deal? Right? It's not a salvation issue. This is not compromising the gospel. There are many women who know the gospel and can proclaim the gospel very clearly articulated. It's not compromising the need for us to, to be born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the problem is, the problem is if we ignore the clear and unambiguous teaching of Scripture, such as 1 Timothy 2.12, where it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. If we can somehow negate something very clear like that because we find it offensive, we can ignore it because we find it offensive, what's going to keep us from negating other passages of Scripture that we find even, even more offensive? How about passages such as John 14.6? A lot of people have a lot of trouble with John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How about Acts 4, 12? And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name other than Jesus Christ under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My friends, that is very offensive to the culture. Believe me, I know personally, I've said that and I've had people call me all kinds of horrible things because I actually believe that. And I'm fairly certain, I'd be willing to wager if I was a betting man, that the vast majority of churches that have compromised on the scriptural prohibition on ordaining women as pastors have also compromised on the exclusivity of salvation through Christ alone. My friends, this is a gospel issue. It's not a gospel issue. There are people who can go to heaven and, and still believe women can be pastors. But if you don't believe that Jesus is the only way, it compromises. if you compromise the exclusivity of Christ, 
There is no need to share the gospel. There is no need for our faith. There's no need for the Great Commission. Why would we want to tell other people if everyone can be saved? What purpose could it be? What purpose for what we do? I would be stay. I would be sleeping in bed. There's a lot of better things I could be doing on a Sunday morning than be sitting here if this was the case. And what would you? Jesus called us to be salt and light. What happens is when we are not salt, we lose our saltiness. We are no longer useful to the world. You see, every Christian, every born again Christian, has a calling, a personal calling on your life from God Himself. And that is to take the gospel to the world. To take this message to the world. And why? Because the gospel is our only hope. It's the only hope for this fallen world. See, the reality is, and people do not like to hear this, but the reality, according to God's word, is that this world is under judgment. Every single person who has ever been born other than Jesus Christ himself has rebelled against the holy God and will face God's unending wrath and punishment for those sins. That is the fate of every single person in the world. And there is only one hope. There is only one way of escape. And that is Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And the reality is that our rebellion against God will be punished. Every last sin will be punished fully and justly. And there are only two options for this punishment. For the believer, this sin is punished on the cross in Jesus. Jesus took our sin upon himself and he suffered the penalty of an eternity in hell that each one of us would face. Cumulative effects on the cross. The intensity of it we cannot even imagine if we accept him. But if we reject him, for the person who rejects Jesus, and if we look only to ourselves or to our religion or to our good works, then this sin will be punished in us, in the sinner, forever, with an eternity in hell. My friends, our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope is the gospel. And the only way we can know Jesus, the only way we can know the gospel, is through Scripture alone. Scripture is our authority. Scripture is our connection with God's revelation. Scripture is how we know God, how we know his character, how we know his will for us. And if we abandon Scripture, if we abandon his Scripture as a church, we lose our power. We become useless to the world. So our application, if we are not a believer, if anyone here who hears my voice who is not a believer, your only application is to come to Christ, is to receive and rest upon him alone for salvation at this very moment. Do not wait. We're not guaranteed another breath. But if we are Christ, if we know Christ, our application is to hold fast to Christ. Hold to him. Hold fast to his word. Strive to correctly understand his word. And when we understand it, submit to this understanding. Even if it goes contrary to everything that we have been wrought, everything that the world tells, if we understand it, we submit to that understanding. That is our applications, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that your word stretches us. Your word challenges us. But Father, like Peter said to Jesus, where else are we to go? There is no other hope. Jesus is the only way. And Father, I pray if there are any who hear my voice, any watching online, any who listen 10 years from now on this sermon audio, Father, I pray that if they do not know you, you will soften their hearts and they will come to you. But Father, for those of us who belong to you, who have been born again, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, I pray that you will give us a commitment to proclaim your gospel unashamedly, unembarrassedly, regardless of whatever uh, hostility we may face, that we will proclaim the truth of your word 
And we will rest upon that because that is the only way we can know that. Know you. The only hope that we have is Christ alone through his word alone. We pray that in his name. Amen.